Just one week from tomorrow night is the Passover, and on the Passover night, Jesus instituted the new covenant for his disciples. We thank God for the new covenant. He came to establish the new covenant, and Christ is, in fact, the mediator of the new covenant. A covenant is an agreement. Have you kept your agreement? Are you under the new covenant? Are you a new covenant Christian? You need to know, and you need to know that you know that you are under the new covenant. So as we approach the New Testament Passover, we need to assure that, make sure that our agreement is solid. We must be committed Christians, committed to be bond servants of Jesus Christ, and realize that we are faithful sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. Jesus established the new covenant the night of the Passover service, the night before he was crucified. We are partakers of the new covenant. We are pioneers of the new covenant, and that's the title of the sermon today. The first fruits of God's plan of salvation are under the new covenant. But how many in the world truly are first fruits? Of God's plan. In the millennium, the new covenant will be available to all humans, but today, just a relative handful of humans are truly under the new covenant. The Israelites in Egypt kept the first Passover. They, they then observed the days of unleavened bread, and we heard, and we will be observing the night to be much observed here next Monday night. God preserved the firstborn of the Israelites in Egypt. When the tenth plague destroyed the firstborn of Egypt, both humans and animals were killed in that plague. That's Exodus 11 and verse 5. God instructed them to select a lamb, to kill the lamb. They were to eat it roasted. They put the blood over the doorposts so that the night... When the Lord came over, the angels of destruction, as you read in the book of Psalms, that they, that is the Israelite firstborn, would be preserved because God passed over the firstborn. Turn to Exodus, the 12th chapter, Exodus 12, and verse 22. Exodus 12 and verse 22. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood, that is the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. So that night of the 14th, they were to stay in their homes or in their domiciles. For the eternal will pass through. You have a pass over and a pass through. And the eternal will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the eternal will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer so people take an exception to the uh, movie, The Ten Commandments, The Destroying Angels. Well, there were destroyers, the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons. In verse 27, that you shall say it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So God delivered the Israelites, and then it became 
After that, they went out the next day during the daylight of the 14th to plunder the Egyptians. They borrowed from them all gold and silver, and uh, they uh, uh, were pretty well uh, uh, paid for their bondage in one, one sense of the word. Pharaoh told them to get out. And the Egyptians urged the people, verse 33, that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. And the children of Israel, verse 35, took from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing. And then they went, verse 37, the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot besides children, probably around 2 or 3 million people. Verse 40, now the sojourn of the children of Israel who lived in Egypt was 430 years. Uh, Some translations make it appear as if they were in Egypt for uh, 430 years, but no, their sojourn was 430 years. And our historians have fairly well documented that the Exodus would have been 1446 B.C., So you go back 480 years from there and you come back to the time of Abraham when that began the sojourn of the descendants of Abraham. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, on the very same day it came to pass, that all the armies of the Eternal went out from the land of Egypt. Verse 42, it is a night of solemn observance to the Lord for bringing them out of the land of Egypt. This is that night of the eternal, a solemn observance for all the children of Israel throughout their generations, or in the King James Version, the night to be much observed. And Deuteronomy 16, verse 1, shows that they went out by night. The book of Numbers shows that it was on the 15th that they went out. After seven weeks, they arrived at Mount Sinai. God had told Moses that he would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and that he, Moses, would serve God on this mountain. That's in Exodus 3 in verse 12, where he said, So I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God even predicted that they would be back to that particular mountain. So when they were at that mountain, what happened? The Old Covenant was established. Let's turn to Exodus 19 and verse 3. Exodus, the 19th chapter, and verse 3. And Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, they walked. So when you read in Revelation, the 12th chapter, about eagles' wings, uh, you may be walking, not flying. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, verse 5, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. God was making an agreement with the children of Israel. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, verse 6, and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Verse 8, the the children of Israel agreed to that covenant, to that agreement. 
Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Eternal has spoken, we will do. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Eternal. So they made an agreement with God. God was going to make them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and they were to be his special people. In the Tomorrow's World Bible Study Course, Lesson 15, and I hope that most of you have taken the Bible Study Course lesson. If you haven't, you certainly can take it as a part of Living University, or you can take it online at uh, tomorrowsworld.org. But on Lesson 15, page 26, uh, Mr. O'Gwen writes, The solemn agreement entered into at Mount Sinai occurred on the day of Pentecost, during the year of the Exodus. It was a formal agreement that spelled out the terms of Israel's relationship with the Creator God. Obedience to the Ten Commandments was at the core of this covenant relationship, Deuteronomy 4, verse 13. However, God understood that while the Israelites had been given His law, as well as promises of blessings for obedience, they simply lacked a heart to truly obey, Deuteronomy 5 verses 28 and 29 where God says, oh, that there were a heart in them. You know, God wants us to have that kind of responsive heart that we would be obedient. Uh, Mr. O'Gwin continues in lesson 14 of the Bible study course. The Old Testament record of Israel's relationship with God evidenced that something more was needed than the law, the promises, and a covenant agreement. What was ultimately needed was a new heart for the people. In Ezekiel 36, 26, God prophesied of a time when the people would be given a new heart and a new spirit. Their hard, stony heart would be replaced with a soft heart of flesh. Now, what was a part of that covenant agreement? They agreed to keep the Ten Commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which are listed in chapters 20 through 24. What was not a part of that agreement? What was not a part of that agreement was the ceremonial parts of the old covenant or the old part of the, of the law, of Moses' law. And so, again, I would encourage all of you to uh, access Dr. Meredith's article on our Tomorrow's World uh, um, website, A New Covenant Question Mark. Uh, this was from the Tomorrow's World magazine. Uh, back in, uh, I think I have the date here, November, December 2005. And I remember at the time uh, there were people who were still struggling about the New Covenant idea. The New Covenant does away with the Ten Commandments. We don't have to keep the Sabbath and the Holy Days anymore. And I remember some people telling me, who were of a different fellowship, Dr. Meredith's article really helped me in understanding the Old Covenants and the New Covenant. I'm going to read from that uh, article. This is a New Covenant question mark from the Tomorrow's World magazine, December, November, December 2005, page 8. Quote, Remember, when the young man asked him the way that is Jesus, the way to eternal life, Jesus said, Keep the commandments, Matthew 19:17. Which commandments? Did this forever include the animal sacrifices? and ceremonial laws that God later added as a reminder of sin after he had given the spiritual laws and principles of Exodus 20 through 24, question mark. 
Animal sacrifice and ceremonial laws were not a part of the original Sinai Covenant. These were added later, after the covenant was enacted by blood, Exodus 24, verse 8. God clearly explains that he did not give Israel these things when the old covenant was made. How do we know that? Turn to Jeremiah, the 27th chapter, Jeremiah 7, and verse 22. And here you find the confirmation about the addition of the ceremonial law. Jeremiah 7, and starting with verse 22. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. What did he tell them? Verse 23, Jeremiah 7. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people, and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. So that is the instruction that God gave. They were added. They were not a part of the original um, covenant. Let's turn to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews 9, which again comments on the symbolism of the sacrifices. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, and uh, verse 9. Hebrews 9, verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to conscience concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed when? Until the time of Reformation. So again, was the Old Covenant at fault? I think most of you know the answer to that in Hebrews the 8th chapter, but let's read that, Romans, uh, Hebrews the 8th chapter. What was the fault of the Old Covenant, or was there a fault in the Old Covenant? Hebrews 8, verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, but finding fault with them. So it was not the agreement, but it was the human beings, as we just read from the Bible study course, they just did not have the heart to keep that agreement. But finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now notice that. Very plain, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. When will that be? That will be after Christ returns. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I'm going to skip that purposely here and start with verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none of his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why did I skip that verse? Because one of my colleagues back in Worldwide, when he was reading this section, purposely skipped verse 10, Reading, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. He purposely skipped over that. 
He was being deceptive himself and trying to present a false version of the new covenant when God says the new covenant is to write his laws in our minds and in our hearts. That I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach their neighbor, none of his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. In that he says, a new covenant is made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the Apostle Paul writing the book of Hebrews before the great tribulation of 70 A.D. And God was giving the Jews an opportunity at that time to realize there was a new covenant available to them. And, uh, of course, we know that some of them, when you read through the book of Acts, that some even the priests were converted. And uh, many of the Jews were converted. Of course, they were all Jews before the first Gentiles were converted under the Apostle Peter and under the Apostle Paul. So the old covenant was not at fault, but Israel was at fault. In our doctrines class, we've been going over the mystery of Israel in uh, Mystery of the Ages by Mr. Herbert Armstrong, and he makes this poignant comment about the lesson of the Israelites, the mystery of Israel. Page 174 of Mystery of the Ages, Mr. Herbert Armstrong writes, quote, But in what manner did the ancient nation Israel play a part in preparation for the kingdom of God? I have already mentioned how the intellectuals and scholarly of this world feel that given sufficient knowledge, human carnal man can solve, could solve all problems. I was just listening to a radio talk show just the other day, and it was just, just incredible to think of the human mind. They were discussing, well, what percentage of the human mind is good and what is bad and what is the future of mankind? And they said, well, the particular interviewee was saying, well, I think 50% good and 49% bad. It was, yes, that is the, uh, yeah, it's like tossing a coin. In all their discussion, they never commented on the character of human beings. The character of human beings is shown from all history that out of the heart of mind come murders, fightings, wars that come among you, as James said in James, the fourth chapter. Only through godly character can we solve those problems and only through God's spirit. Mr. Herbert Armstrong continues, God let many generations of ancient Israel and Judah prove by hundreds of years of human experience that the best of humanity without God's Holy Spirit cannot solve human problems and evils, end of quote. I'll repeat that. God let many generations of ancient Israel and Judah prove by hundreds of years of human experience that the best of humanity without God's Holy Spirit cannot solve human problems and evils. Well, did the Old Covenant establish the Ten Commandments? We understand, most of us, that the Ten Commandments were well enforced before the Israelites ever got to Mount Sinai. They simply agreed to keep what was already in force. 
Those of you who have the uh, memorization cards in the list, you know Genesis 26.5. Long before Mount Sinai, it says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. God's Ten Commandments were well enforced long before Mount Sinai. The Israelites just agreed to observe and to keep what was already in force. Again, back to Dr. Meredith's article on the New Covenant. He says, readers and translators of the New Testament sometimes have difficulty understanding the subtle distinction between the English words covenant and testament. These words are both used to translate the Greek word diatheke, and I think it's pronounced in the Greek theatheke, but it's D-I-A-T-H-E-K-E, diatheke, which occurs 33 times in the New Testament. In classical Greek, diatheke was used to mean a will or a testament. But in the Greek Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Greek word diatheke is more than 300 times rendered as the equivalent of the Hebrew berith, which is always translated into English as covenant. The essential distinction between the two meanings is that in a testament, the testator expresses his will as to what should be done after his death, especially in respect to his property. The covenant is an agreement between living persons as to what shall be done by them while living. Uh, Dr. Meredith refers to Ralph Earle, Th.D., word meanings in the New Testament. Quotes uh, E.D. Burton, a critical and exegetical commentary on the epistle to the Galatians. Dr. Meredith writes, Dr. Earle concludes his analysis of diatheke by stating, quote, we would agree with most commentators that the only place in the New Testament where this word means testament, that is the Greek word diatheke, is Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. So uh, I think you have your page open, your Bible open to that scripture, uh, Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. We'll read that in a minute. In other words, scholars acknowledge that if we use our terminology accurately, the New Testament, the part of your Bible that you call the New Testament, should more properly be called the New Covenant. Uh, when I mentioned that to my wife, uh, that was kind of shocking, but it seems to be obvious that that's what the New Testament should be called, the New Covenant. And if we are consistent, Dr. Meredith writes, we must admit that Jesus Christ's instructions, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments, Matthew 19:17, applies to all Christians today. A covenant is simply an agreement between two living parties. Let's read this in Hebrews 9, verse 16, in the, New, in the New King James. For where there is a testament, there also of necessity must be the death of a testator. Now, the Greek word for the testament here in uh, both verses is diatheke. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated. So here in the New Testament, in the New King James Version, there are only three times that the word diatheke is translated testament. Uh, two are right here 
And the third one is 2 Corinthians 3.14, referring to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Scriptures. So, however, in the King James Version, the word diatheke uh, has the translated 14 times as testament, whereas the New King James only translates it three times. How many of you, I like to take surveys, how many of you right now in your lap or with you on your uh, your laptop have the New King James Version? Let me see your hands. How many have the New King James Version? Okay. How many of you have the authorized King James Version? Okay. Oh, wow, only about uh, 1%, 2% here have the King James Version. How many have another different version than that? Okay, Uh, it's about uh, 2% have a different version. And so, again, I just caution those of you who have the King James Version to make sure that when you see the word testament, that most likely it should be uh, translated covenant and not testament, except the three uh, places I mentioned to you. And summarizing, the first part of the Old Covenant was an agreement to keep God's commandments as stated in Exodus 20 through 24. God's commandments were already in effect, so the disobedience of the Israelites could not annul what was already in effect. Last week we heard Dr. Meredith's inspiring sermon focus on Christ. We know Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's our great high priest. He was the one who was the spokesman, the Logos. He's the one who upholds the creation by the word of his power, that upholds the universe. As the Moffat translation has it in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. But he is also the mediator of the new covenant. Let's turn there, we're right there in Matthew 9, I mean Hebrews 9, uh, reading verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He is our Redeemer. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, verse 15, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. So Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. There has been a movement in the Roman Catholic Church, and I remember back, I don't know what year it was, I think it's probably around uh, 19, uh, middle 1998 or 1999, on the cover of, it was either Newsweek or Time magazine, that the Pope was very interested in Mary becoming a mediatrix. So we have this article from the New York Times published December 23, 2000 by Jan Jarbo Russell titled, Seeking a Promotion for the Virgin Mary. 
Many of our brethren have been deceived by a false version of the new covenant and billions and billions more people are going to be deceived by false doctrine in the future. Seeking a promotion for the Virgin Mary, quote, The world of today is in a desperate need of a mother, whispered Professor Mark Miraval as he sat behind his desk at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, carefully fingering a string of rosary beads. Half a world away inside the Vatican, yet another enormous box arrived filled with petitions asking Pope John Paul II, this is back in the year 2000, to exercise his absolute power to proclaim a new and highly debated dogma that the Virgin Mary is co-redeemer with Jesus and cooperates fully with her son in the redemption of mankind. Can you think of a more wrong, false doctrine? Well, there are many false doctrines. But let me continue with the article. If Mr. Miraval's campaign succeeds and John Paul II proclaims the Virgin Mary as a co-redeemer, she would be a vastly more powerful figure, something close to a fourth member of the Holy Trinity and the primary female face through which Christians experience the divine. Specifically, Roman Catholics would be required to accept three new spiritual truths, that Mary is co-redemptrix, as the Pope terms it, and participates in people's redemption, that Mary is mediatrix and has the power to grant all graces, and that Mary is, quote, the advocate for the people of God, end of quote, in Mr. Miraval's words, and has the authority to influence God's judgments. That would be the case if the Pope were to proclaim her as co-mediatrix and co-redeemer. The article concludes, although it has the support of at least 12 cardinals in Rome, others fear that its acceptance would cause a major schism among Catholics and set back efforts at ecumenism. Because the dogma would be an infallible proclamation by the Pope, it would also provoke renewed debate over the role of the Pope's power in modern society. Well, this remains an underlying movement. It has not been approved by the Vatican, but it is still an underlying movement. The world is deceived by the Babylonian mystery system, and the world is deceived because it does not accept the revealed word of God. Nowhere in the Bible is Mary considered a redeemer or a mediatrix. She currently is asleep in Jesus, and she will be in the first resurrection with all the saints that come up in that resurrection. The Bible reveals that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. As Zechariah prophesied in Luke 1, verse 62, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Thank God that Jesus is the redeemer. Thank God that he is the mediator of the new covenant. Many of us had to face this new covenant deception the false doctrine that was coming out in the middle 90s and near the end of the 1990s. In 1988, as I recall, the Worldwide Church of God numbered around 155,000 around the world. And then in the early 90s, the leaders of the church began to change doctrine uh, ever so slowly. 
but it eventually pervaded the church, was the false version of the New Covenant. Thousands embraced that heresy. And some of you, remember, had friends and, and maybe family that embraced that doctrine and, and went way off base. And some of you may have been deceived for a little while until you prove from the Bible the fallacies that our former association was teaching. One of the arguments was, uh, just read Romans and Galatians, and you'll understand the New Covenant, that you don't have to keep the Sabbath or the Holy Days, and you can go ahead and eat those uh, unclean meats and so forth. Well, let's just take a look at that uh, briefly. By the way, um, Dr. Meredith has given a sermon on the book of Galatians, if you go to, again, our lcg.org website and click on sermons or do a search on the upper right-hand bar and type in Galatians, uh, you'll find Dr. Meredith's uh, sermon, uh, number 569, Galatians Part 1. Well, let's turn to Galatians briefly and see. Uh, we don't have time to cover all of the arguments, but just take a look uh, at one brief Argument here, Galatians, the first chapter, Galatians 1. Galatians 1, verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, we'll be remembering that at the Passover, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Verse 6, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who has called to you to the grace of Christ, to a different, in the grace of Christ, to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel of Christ? We know what the gospel of Christ is. It's the kingdom of God. As he mentioned in Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, repent and believe in the coming kingdom. And then Matthew, we already quoted that, Matthew 17, 9, if you'll enter into life, keep the commandments. Matthew 4, 4, and Luke 4, 4. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. But what was the main issue here? Chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And, of course, what the uh, false interpreters say, well, the yoke of bondage is the commandments, is the, the God's law. No. What was happening here was that there was this group trying to get people to be circumcised and insisting that circumcision was a requirement for salvation. And so Paul says, indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. And that included, of course, the uh, the, uh, the sacrifices and the, the other uh, washings and so forth. You have estranged from Christ. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. 
And what is righteousness? Psalm 119, 172, all thy commandments are righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. So the point of it all was the matter of circumcision. And uh, I don't know if you can see it in my Bible, but I've highlighted in pink uh, with a highlighter every time the word circumcised, uncircumcised occurred. And you just pops out from the book of Galatians the issue was circumcision. And so Acts, the 15th chapter, and verse 1, I'll just read it to you. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the Apostle Paul is addressing this horrible heresy. who's he saying you have to be circumcised in order to be have salvation. And, of course, the... Jerusalem Conference addressed that issue and made it very clear that that was not a requirement for salvation. 1 Corinthians 7.19, you might turn there. 1 Corinthians 7.19, which is uh, actually should have that keyed in to what we just read in Galatians. First Corinthians 7 and verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So did Galatians do away with the keeping of the commandments? The issue was circumcision. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that, no, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. And we know the Apostle Paul who said, well, Romans, just read Romans. Yes, there are some difficult scriptures we might uh, have difficult in understanding, but they can all be explained because Paul makes it very plain in Romans 7, well, verses 1 through 6, seems to some might misinterpret as doing away with the commandments, but that what does Paul say in Romans 7, verse 7? What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. This is one of the lessons we'll be discussing during the days of unleavened bread, the battle of human nature, how to overcome the sin that's in our members. The Apostle Paul was commenting on here later when he said, O wretched man that I am, who shall, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Verse 24, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, we have done away with the law of God. No, with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Verse 12, he says, the law is holy. It's not been abrogated. It is holy and the commandment holy, just and good. So it's very clear the Apostle Paul stand on the law of God. And he said he served the law of God. Again, I was just uh, remarked, uh, well, shocked, I guess, when some of our friends there and uh, our former association would just say, oh, well, uh, the leaders say it's okay to go ahead and eat shell, uh, shellfish and 
ham and pork and everything, and so they just go ahead and did it with just not being fully founded in the Word of God. They had not really internalized the Word of God, and really, frankly, that was the problem with the Israelites. The law was external. It wasn't internal. And the new covenant is, I will write your laws on your hearts and on your minds. So God's law becomes internal, not just external to us. I I remember uh, reading Leviticus, uh, the 11th chapter, thinking about these uh, friends that were just going to uh, go ahead and start eating all these uh, abominable crawling things. And uh, it says that Leviticus 11.41, you know, whether or not you were discussing the old or new covenants, what does it say in Leviticus 11 and verse 41? And every creeping thing that creeps on the earth shall be an abomination. It shall not be eaten. Whatever crawls on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, or whatever has many feet among all creeping things that creep on the earth, these you shall not eat, for they are an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled for them. Notice verse 44. For I am the eternal your God... You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Where does he repeat that? He repeats that to New Testament Christians in uh, 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, or verse 15. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, 1 Peter 1 verse 16, be holy because I am holy, right in the context of what you should eat or what not eat. Verse 45 of Leviticus 11, For I am the Eternal who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So God makes it very clear. So the other deception, and uh, we need another hour to go on with this, but another deception was a concept of obedience. And I remember uh, sometime uh, when I was preaching about obedience and uh, I saw some sour faces on uh, the leaders who were promoting the false concept of uh, the New Covenant, uh, that somehow obedience was a, uh, a challenge to their false doctrine of the New Covenant because If you obey God, that means you have to do something, and if you have to do something, then you are having salvation by works. That was their crazy and heretical reasoning. It was wrong. They did not like the word obey. So, but we already read, well, let's read in Romans 6, turn back here. Uh, Romans 6, verse 14, the Apostle Paul's talking about this, issue about grace and and law. And he says, uh, For sin shall not have dominion over you, Romans 6, verse 14, for you are not under law, but under grace. What shall we say then? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Certainly not. Shall we transgress the law? No. We're not under the penalty of the law. We have been forgiven of our past sins. We have unmerited pardon. We are under grace. But shall we then sin? 
What happens, of course, under the false doctrine of the new covenant is that you are free to transgress the Ten Commandments. You are free to transgress the Fourth Commandment, Seventh-day Sabbath. You are free to not observe the annual festivals that Jesus and the apostles observed. And up until June of 1995, I believe it was, the Worldwide Church of God had in its official statement of fundamental beliefs, the the Worldwide Church of God observes the seventh-day Sabbath following the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles. The Worldwide Church of God observes the annual festivals following the example of Jesus Christ and the apostles. And from that moment on, around June 1955, I guess they decided not to follow the example of Jesus and the apostles. But the Apostle Paul goes on to say, verse 16, Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? Oh, there's that word, obey. You are the one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Verse 18, Romans 6, And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. In the end of verse 19, So now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. I remember one lady saying, oh, I'm free. She says, I'm free now. I don't have to keep the Sabbath. I'm free to uh, do whatever I want. Well, what she was saying was she was saying, I am free from righteousness, and I am now going to become a slave of sin. Now, she didn't know that's what she was doing, but that's, in fact, what she was doing. We've got a very plain statement here. You were fully free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin, all of us are so thankful for that as being pioneers of the new covenant, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I would uh, encourage you to... uh, uh, listen to our our uh, sermons. I think we have on uh, on our website. At least Living Grace is on our website, number six ninety seven. Are you under grace? May not be on the website, but be in our church library, number one forty one. And we do have uh, a Tomorrow's World article: Obedience versus Grace, uh, July August two thousand eleven. So uh, let me just read uh, from that article. You can, again, access that on our Tomorrow's World website, Obedience versus Grace, question mark, July, August 2011, Tomorrow's World magazine. Quote, should a newly begotten Christian whom God has forgiven and granted grace, unmerited forgiveness and pardon, continue to transgress God's law and disobey God? Paul says plainly, certainly not. The biblical evidence is overwhelming. We cannot continue to disobey God willfully and be given the gift of salvation. Paul was dealing with false Christians who are trying, as do many today, 
to use grace as a license to sin. The Apostle Jude also condemned this unbiblical approach to grace. Let's turn there to Jude. I know most of you are familiar with it. But God's true grace is a part of the true new covenant. Jude, verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Revised Standard Version states this, Intruders pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness. The New International Version has it, They are godless men, who changed the grace of our God into a license for immorality. How many Christians or professing Christians are doing just that today, that perverting the grace of God? They're saying by their conduct, we're free to transgress the Ten Commandments. We don't need to obey God and his commandments. So that's absolutely wrong. So thousands of formerly Church of God Sabbath keepers have been deceived by a false version of the New Covenant, and all of us should know the false arguments and how to refute them with God's biblical truth. Now, when was the New Covenant established for true Christians? Turn to Matthew, the 26th chapter. Matthew, the 26th chapter. The uh, New King James, one of the editions, has as a subhead, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. That's an incorrect subtitle, subhead. No, he instituted the New Covenant or the New Testament Passover. Matthew 26 and uh, verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So Jesus instituted the new covenant. He showed the symbols of his shed blood as the wine, that part of the Passover service. As I said, some call the Passover service of the Lord's Supper. Well, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. Uh, Luke 22, verse 19, uh, verse 20 says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on this table. So Jesus instituted the new covenant Passover after the supper, that is, when they had taken the lamb and the traditional Passover meal. So what conditions do you agree to under the new covenant? Jesus said, this blood, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So what conditions do you agree to under the new covenant? We already read in Hebrews 8, And verse 10, 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was God's part of the agreement. And when Christ comes to establish the kingdom of God on earth, he'll teach all the nations the way to peace and specifically make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel and then for all people. But we now are under the new covenant. We're pioneers of the new covenant. And what an incredible blessing God has given us to actually have that title, that position in his family. I know you know it all, but I think it's good to repeat it. Now let's turn back to Jeremiah 31:31, where the new covenant is introduced by the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Because this is what we've been quoting in Hebrews the 8th chapter and Hebrews the 10th chapter, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with the fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Eternal. And we are engaged to Christ, and we will marry him. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Eternal. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the the prophet Jeremiah was prophesying of those days to come, and we are pioneers of that new covenant. But what did you agree to as a part of that new covenant. You agreed to repent and to be baptized. You followed Acts 2, verse 38, where Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So it's by Christ's name, his authority, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What else did you agree to? Let's turn to Luke 14. We've read this in several sermons, but in this particular point, it's good to review our new covenant agreement. Luke 14 is called Counting the Cost. Some of you may be counseling for baptism. You need to again realize that there is a commitment that you make for life. And Jesus gave those terms for that commitment. Verse 26, Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. The word hate, of course, is about love less by comparison because God tells you to honor your father and mother. But he says you've got to love Christ more than every human being on the face of the earth, including yourself. Or else you cannot be his disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We all have crosses to bear. Some of us it's physical. We have ailments or pains or some kind of physical debility. 
Uh, some it might be psychological, coming from fragmented homes or broken homes in the past. And we have pain and emotional crosses to bear. And sometimes it may be in your job situation or family situation. But he says, you must carry that cross and come after me. And we saw in the sermonette where Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and follow me. Then he gives the analogy of counting the cost. In verse 28, if you're going to build a building, a tower, you need to make sure that you have the resources to finish the job. You don't want to have be mocked at the end, verse 30, saying this man began to build and was not able to, to finish. What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and considers uh, conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you who does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, those are the agreements that you made when you were baptized. In the New Covenant article, I'm coming back to that again, and I say I hope that uh, those of you who hear or see this sermon later on will actually uh, access tomorrowsworld.org and read Dr. Meredith's article on a new covenant, question mark. He writes as follows from that article, quote, at baptism, a truly converted person enters into a genuine new covenant relationship with God and must repent of breaking God's Ten Commandments. Sincere repentance means being so sorry that you will forsake your lawless way then turn around and go the other way, the way of God's law. Clearly then, at baptism, a real Christian makes a covenant with the Creator to quit sinning, to stop breaking God's spiritual law. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome, 1 John 5 and verse 3. But what are the requirements for baptism? Faith and repentance. You repent of your sins, repent of what you are. We've described that in previous sermons. And you also have faith as you accept the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You have faith and you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Master, your Owner, your Savior, your High Priest, your Lord. That's the faith that you have to begin with. 1 Peter 1.17. Let's turn there, 1 Peter 1.17. And uh, again, we find out that it is the blood that confirms the covenant. 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was ordained before the foundation of the world, but manifest in these last times to you. And let me just turn over a few more pages to Revelation, the first chapter. And uh, 
Okay, well, he's talking about every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him, Revelation 1 and verse 6. And verse 5, well, verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, he'll be the firstborn of many brethren, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You belong to Christ. You have been bought with a price. So you glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So as we approach the Passover, remember the agreement that you made, the commitment that you made at baptism. And we need to commit ourselves to endure to the end. We have a sermon on the LCG website uh, titled Our Passover Commitment. You might want to uh, access that sermon. It gives ten commitments for the Passover. I'll just mention a couple of them. Be committed to maintain a repentant attitude. That you need to the end of your life. And you'll need to think about that as you approach the Passover. Be committed to forgive others. Be committed to overcome. Be committed to trust Christ to save you. Be committed to support God's work. Jesus established the new covenant the night before he was crucified. And at baptism, a truly converted person enters into a genuine new covenant relationship with God, as we read from Dr. Meredith's article. We are committed to live by every word of God, to be a light in the world. And very few human beings on the face of the earth today have that new covenant relationship that you and I have. We are pioneers of the new covenant, living a life of love with Christ in us, a life of godly righteousness, growing in divine nature. And that's what the Days of Unleavened Bread picture, the need to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ once we've been reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled We shall be saved by his life. Jesus is called the messenger of the covenant in Malachi 3 and verse 1. And he is going to again help those exiles that will come out from captivity from all over the world. We can mention more about the second exodus, perhaps the Feast of Tabernacles. But Isaiah 11.11 says it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, Pathros and Cush, Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So not only will the descendants British and American descendants be in captivity, but also the house of Judah is going to be in captivity as well. And God is going to gather them after Jesus comes back, and he will then establish the new covenant with them. I just want to cover one more section. 
There are recent religious trends concerning grace and faith. In fact, uh, the news item is here in your church bulletin, uh, news and prophecy. And for those of you who are uh, out in the church areas, you can check the world ahead. Pope greets evangelicals, a new brotherhood, question mark. During a meeting of evangelical Pentecostal leaders organized by televangelist Kenneth Copeland, an engaging evangelical Anglican bishop, Tony Palmer, called for reconciliation and brotherhood between evangelicals and Roman Catholics, pointing out that all are Christians, that all Christians are Catholic, with a small c, in the truest sense of the world. And that's from truest sense of the word. That's from Catholic World News, February 21st. Mr. Palmer also declared that Luther's revolt was over and there was no longer a need for a Protestant church. So you might want to read this, this particular article. But in that discussion, the Tony Palmer said that it appeared to be that the Catholic Church had agreed with a statement that would help Protestants be reconciled. Quote, we are saved by grace through faith, to good works, end of quote. And that statement seemed to be a reconciling statement between Protestants and Catholics. And it's very close to the Scripture. Let's turn to Ephesians 2 and verse 8. But there's one element missing from that, and it's the matter of whose faith saved us. And I've heard Mr. Herbert Armstrong on the radio just very passionately describe Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so we have many in the Protestant churches, and I've heard the expression that you are saved by grace alone. Dr. Meredith comments in the original Restoring Original Christianity booklet about Luther's incorrect doctrine of faith alone. You might want to save your place there and just look at Romans 3, verse 28, where Luther actually mistranslated, inserted a word that was not even there. Again, you do need to tremble before God's word. You don't add to God's word. You don't subtract from God's word, but Luther did. Romans Uh, 3.28 in the New King James Version reads, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Dr. Meredith writes, Luther added the word alone, sola in Latin, so that in his German language New Testament the phrase became justified by faith alone, a plainly wrong change without support in text. When one critic raised an objection to his changing scripture, Luther haughtily replied, Should your pope give himself any useless annoyance about the word sola? You may promptly reply, It is the will of Dr. Martin Luther that it should be so. Dr. Meredith concludes, And we may add, On good authority, no other reason for such unscriptural changes as these was ever ever given. When it came to Luther's own personal doctrinal convictions, Martin Luther was truly a self-willed man. And so we have this idea that, yes, uh, you are saved by grace alone. But back to Ephesians 
the second chapter, Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved by grace. Now it doesn't, it introduces the word faith and this new statement, but the question is, whose faith is it? We have to have our own faith to begin with, because it tells us, again, in Hebrews 11, that uh, he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So when we first approach God, it is our faith. That is one of the requirements for baptism. Repentance is a requirement for baptism. But after then we are buried in the water, symbolic of being buried into the death of Christ, coming up out of the water, symbolic of being resurrected with Christ, to walk in newness of life, we receive God's Holy Spirit and the gift of faith. Whose faith is that? It is the faith of Christ. So you might well hold your place here, and well, you know the scripture, Dr. Meredith has quoted it so many times, but it is so fundamental to salvation, and to our belief, and to our future. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, those of you who have the King James Version have the correct translation. The New King James translates it wrongly. It says, faith in Jesus, rather than by the faith of the Son of God, it is faith in the Son of God, which is incorrect. It is not your faith, it is Christ's faith. You might turn there to uh, Galatians Galatians 2, because there are three places where, in the New Testament, where it shows that it is the faith of Christ not our own faith that saves us. Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works or the deeds of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ, it should read, the New King James has it wrong, faith in Jesus Christ, even if we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. And that's all, all true and good. But it is the faith of Christ. As Mr. Herbert Armstrong would say, those who say it's by grace alone, and it's by their own faith, then their own faith is their own works. And the very contradiction of their saying that we should not be saved by works, they are saying they are being saved by their own faith. And that's not by Christ's faith. So, while the expression that was given here most recently to reconcile Protestant charismatics to the Roman Catholic Church, we are saved by grace through faith to do good works, to to good works. It's very close, but very deceptive, because it doesn't tell the whole story. In his booklet, Restoring, I already read that on the matter of restoring original Christianity. I hope that you'll read that. So in summary, brethren, the Apostle Paul warned us that in the end time many would be deceived by false doctrines and false prophets. Might turn there to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. 
For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers who will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned away to fables. So thousands have been deceived by a false version of the new covenant, but thankfully God has revealed the truth to his true church and his converted children. Again, I encourage all of you to read the Tomorrow's World magazine article, A New Covenant, uh, question mark, in the November-December 2005 Tomorrow's World magazine, available online at Tomorrow's World org website. I also encourage you to read the article on grace versus obedience, a question mark. We thank God that he is writing on our hearts and on our minds his commandments, his laws of love. And he's not doing that in some kind of mystic way. It takes our conscious, loving effort to make sure we know the Ten Commandments, we know the spiritual application of the Ten Commandments, and we are practicing that way of life. That's how God is writing his laws on our hearts and on our minds. He's transforming our character into Christ's divine character, and it's through his promises that we are partakers of his divine nature, as it tells us in 1 Peter 1. So, brethren, let's continue to focus on Christ. Thank God for the faith of Christ by which we're being saved, and trust Christ that he will save us through his grace, and that we will obediently and faithfully fulfill the mission that he's given his church Looking forward to the millennium when the mediator of the new covenant will establish the new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, and teach all nations the way to peace and salvation. So let's rejoice as true pioneers of the new covenant called to do his work and to fulfill his will.